Amen. Amen and good morning. Glad you're with us. We're in our Minor Prophets series. We're taking about three weeks per book. Uh, we just finished Jonah. We're going to dive into Amos today, and I'm going to warn you, that is appropriate because it's going to hurt a little. Amos is going to hurt a little. For nine chapters, Amos just hammers the people of God about the issue of injustice. And then in the last four verses, he gives some good news. So we have something to look forward to at the end there. Um, but he is just going to pound away at this. And as God's people, what, it's going to take some humility and open-heartedness because we have to hear what he says and consider that maybe it applies to us. So we at least have to ask that question. That's what we're going to do over these next three weeks. Um, and because it's about injustice, um, I feel like I need to take just a minute or two, maybe a few minutes, and point out what may be the elephant in the room. Uh, so let's get uncomfortable together. Look at your neighbor, say, we can do hard things. And then say, hey, even if we don't see eye to eye, we're still going to be friends. Even if it's untrue, say that. It's just daily affirmations. It's good. Okay. Here's the thing. When we talk about injustice, uh, we all know that there is a conversation happening in this country right now about racial injustice, specifically between white people and black people. Um, and before we dive into this book on injustice, I want us to see something about ourselves as a church. I'm just talking about here, right? Um, as your pastor, I have the privilege of talking to so many of you who call this church their home, and, I, and I've talked to many of you about the issue of racial injustice in this country, and I have heard two deeply conflicted messages. I wanted to share them with you so we could look at it together. The first is this. I've heard from some of you, racism is a huge problem in this country, and we need to acknowledge and do something about systemic racial injustice. Racism exists, white supremacy exists, we are the people of God, he is a God of justice, and we need to do something about it. Now, from others of you, I have heard this message. This country is not a racist country. And those who say black people are systemically oppressed are being deceptive because they have an agenda. And we need to stop telling minorities the deck is stacked against them. A God is a God who's pretty big on personal responsibility. That's where we need to focus. Let's look at those together. Now, a caveat, I, no one has actually said either of those two sentences. Those sentences are a summary of messages that I've heard, and I realize that they're probably uh, on the two extremes, so most of us would probably identify somewhere in the middle, but leaning towards one of those. But I want us to think about these two statements. Those are not statements about injustice that exist out there in the world. That's not what I'm saying, although surely they do. We are a microcosm of that. But they are uh, statements that are in conflict that exist here within us as a faith community. Some people in this community deeply feel racism in this culture. And some people in this community are deeply suspicious of allegations of racism in this culture. Who's right? Don't answer that. Who's right? How do we deconflict this? Uh, well, if you will allow me, I want to take just a, a few minutes to build a, a brief intellectual framework based on like three truth claims that build upon each other. And I want, uh, if you could just for the next few minutes, hold this 
uh, with an open uh, mind, hold it a little bit loosely until I get to the end, and then we can go back and look at this. Uh, but these, this intellectual framework, these three ideas, will not just help us maybe deconflict those two statements, but they'll also really help us understand what prophets like Amos are trying to do and how they are a gift to the church. So, three ideas. Here's the first. In almost every way of measuring, the world is better than it has ever been in history. And the U.S. is at least one of the healthiest and most just cultures on earth. Now look at that statement. That statement is both historically accurate and it is relatively true. So historically, if you go back to like the world of the prophets, or not even that far, just go back to where, like when Jesus lived, um, the world was a horrific museum of traumatic events. I cannot overstate that. Uh, like it has just been awful all the time. I don't have time to explain everything, but anyone who thinks the world is getting more unjust, I just want to gently say you, don't have, you have a very poor grasp on just how horrific life on this planet has been really up until this last century is maybe where the line I would drive, draw. It's amazing the traumatic injustice that has happened on this planet. But I also would say that statement is relatively true, meaning if you compare the U.S. relative to the majority of nations on the planet and almost every metric that we would use to measure something like justice, we come out near the top. Now, if you've ever traveled outside the borders of this country, and I don't mean like a all-inclusive in Mexico. That doesn't count. I mean, like, if you've ever, like, sat in the living room of a middle-class person from another part of this world and just listened to them, just heard about their life, allowed them to tell you about what they go through on a daily basis, just raising a family in another part of the world, you will walk away from that with this conclusion, wow, I have a lot of freedom. I have a lot of affluence and I have access to a lot of justice just by being born in these borders of the United States. And I say that, be, side note, like just political observation here, I, I would suggest that people on the left and the right need to hear this because there's a lot of complaining happening right now and it, like it's for two very different reasons on the left and the right, but I want to just suggest to us if we, if we stepped out of this environment for a second, we might step back in and say, hey, it's not always that bad, right? And we need to see that. Now, this is in no way dismissing the fact that we have enormous problems here too. Of course, we have injustices here. And just because we're doing better than most does not dismiss us from dealing with our cultural sins in any way. I might make the comparison like to something like life expectancy. Life expectancy in the U.S. right now is 79 years old, about. Um, if you go back to the 1900, the year 1900, that's 120 years prior to this year, right? Do you, do you know what life expectancy was in the year 1900? It was 47. Like, so 47 to 79. That is an enormous amount of progress in 120 years. But would any of us say, I feel like doctors should stop curing diseases? No, of course not. Just because there's progress doesn't mean we stop. We got that progress because we didn't stop. Injustice works the same way. And so we can see the truthfulness of that statement from a historical perspective and say, well, we have made tremendous progress, and yet there is still devastating injustice in this country. 
So that's the first idea of this framework. Here's a second. God is perfectly just. Perfectly just. Justice is his very nature. And I would say the reason that we value it is because we were created reflecting that image, right? So the reason we want to live in a just society, in a just culture in the first place, the reason we don't want to just exploit and abuse everyone all the time is because we reflect the image of God. And not just as Christians, but every human reflects the image of God. And so every human longs for this perfect justice of the God in whose image we were created. We can think about this uh, like with the issue of righteousness for a second. So righteousness is an individual issue. God is also perfectly righteous and holy. So there's no human who's truly righteous compared to God. But there are humans like I can look at, uh, well, here's a guy. Like, look at how much he's sinning. I'm doing so much better than that guy. But then I turn and I look at the perfection of Jesus. And I have one response, have mercy on me, a sinner, right? And so with righteousness, I might be way more righteous than that guy over there, but compared to Jesus, I'm a sinner deserving of hell. And that is the only logical conclusion. So that's how righteousness applies to individuals. But justice is something that would apply to society. So justice is a word that's not an individual word, but it's like a community word. It's a word that applies to all people. So justice is kind of like cultural righteousness. That's how you can think of that word. And just like God wants individuals to be righteous, God wants cultures to be just, to reflect his character in all of its systems. And so justice is going to work the same way that righteousness does. We can compare our culture to our, like the way we used to be or the way that other cultures are uh, and appreciate that we're not doing as bad as some. But as soon as we compare American culture to the perfect justice of Almighty God, we have no choice but to conclude that we are utterly morally bankrupt and have so far to go, right? Because His justice is so perfect. With me so far? Here's the third idea. And this is the premise that I think will help us understand what the prophets are doing and also help us deconflict those first two contradictory statements. Whenever we evaluate injustice, we have to decide if we're using the earthly standard or God's standard. And I think some of the conflict that exists within this congregation, but surely within our world, is that sometimes we're using the earthly standard and we're talking to someone who is using God's standard and it feels like we're talking about two totally different situations. And by the way, as Christians, we are not the only ones who talk about God's standard. I would say a good description of what's happening in the world is there's a lot of people right now wrestling with what would be the perfect standard. And what they may not know is they're wrestling with God's standard for his kingdom, that longing that he put inside of them. But they may not name it that way, so they talk about it in other, in other terms. But we, as this people, we understand that it is that perfect standard of the kingdom of God. And so when we ask a question, is America racist, we have to go back to this idea. Like, the follow-up is racist compared to what? Compared to how we used to be in America? We've made some progress. But compared to the kingdom of God? We have some gaps. Here's what we need to know about the prophets. The prophets are exclusively comparing the people of God to God's standard. 
That is all that they're talking about is here's where you are, here is God's standard. It is God's dream, and they have so embraced this dream of God to have a society that reflects God's character where the law of love applies to all, and if anyone is not flourishing, then it deeply matters to God's people. So the prophets are looking at that standard and they're focusing on trying to get us to, to confront systems of sin. And that is a holy work that we need as God's people and we need to stay open to it as God's people. We can never close the door on that. And so when we talk about racial injustice in the U.S. or even here at Pulpit Rock, I, I think we need to be careful that we're not having a bad conversation because we're talking about two different things. And I just want to say this gently, but to some of you, I would say this. It is important to acknowledge some of the progress that God himself has already made in this country. Like, it's real progress. And, and I would suggest this. When it comes to racial injustice, the progress that has been made has primarily been made through the church. Now, I understand that there are churches that were complicit in slavery and racism and all sorts of other really ugly, racially unjust things, but also the abolitionist movement, the civil rights movements, those were works of the Holy Spirit led by the people of God, right? That is our legacy. Those are deeply Christian movements. They were not works of government. They were not works of philosophy or academia or science. They were works of the church rising up. They were Christian movements, and we should praise God for them and not discount that progress, but also I'd like to gently suggest, uh, I think for some of you, it, it is important to acknowledge how incredibly far we still have to go as a country. And that is absolutely true. We cannot, I defy you to look at our culture, to look at our systems at every level, and then look at our holy and perfectly just God and not conclude there are some gaps. There are some gaps, and we have to compare our society as God's people to his kingdom, not just to other societies or not to the way that we used to be, but to his kingdom and call out those gaps. That is what Amos is going to be doing in his book. It is a holy work. It is not a liberal agenda, as some have called it. It's a holy work where the people of God rise up and say, here's God's kingdom. We need to get there. Let's step into it together. And you'll see Amos uh, calling out this God who accounts for every single life and trying to draw the attention of God's people to those lives who have had the deck stacked against them unfairly. And so as we get into Amos today, I want us to think, there's a lot of injustice in the world, different types of injustice. I want us to just think about this conversation about racial injustice between black people and white people in America. And wherever you are, can I just ask, can we just open up our hands a little bit? Can we just soften a little bit so that God can take us someplace better than we are? Amos is going to give us a picture of where we would be if God had his dream. And it's a picture worth falling in love with. It's not a picture worth arguing about or letting politicians tell us what to think about it. So let's collectively, just with humility, maybe set down our stance for the next three weeks, and with an open mind, let's look at this. Amos chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa. The vision he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam, was son of Joash, was king of Israel. 
So Amos, from the southern kingdom of Judah, he's a shepherd there, which likely means he owns a lot of sheep. So he's like a, a wealthy guy, wealthy southerner. Uh, and he's writing in the specific moment, the specific time. Remember, the kingdom is split into two. There's Judah in the south. There's Israel in the north. He is sent to the north. That's where Jonah was a prophet. He, he is sent to around the end of Jonah's life, probably during the very end of the reign of Jeroboam II. So Assyria is still struggling at this point. It was a time of great prosperity for Israel. But Jeroboam is about to die, and the kingdom is about 40 years away from being wiped off the planet by the Assyrians. So Amos shows up to the northern kingdom with this message from God that basically says, hey, y'all, you think you're doing okay, but you're tolerating all kinds of injustice that flies in the face of God's dream for you. And so if you don't change, God's going to tear down everything that you built these last few years. So what was the injustice they're tolerating? Uh, I want to encourage you, you could do this on your own, read the first four chapters. I'm going to zip through them so that we can park in chapter five. Uh, but before we get to chapter 5, he kind of makes the case for injustice. This is from chapter 2, verse 6. He says, this is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor, is on the dust of the ground, and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son, use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge in the house of their God. They drink wine taken as fines. So there's a lot here, right? He's talking about a lot of things. To, to list them, it, it appears that they are selling the poor into slavery when they couldn't take their debt or pay their debts. It appears that the corrupt courts are a big problem. There's a criminal justice issue here. Uh, there is a sexual immorality issue here, which is likely connected to temple prostitution. I don't have time to get into that. Just come back for the Hosea series. Um, this garment thing, that's about unjust lending practices that the Israelites were doing. And so, like, let me just make an observation here. When it comes to sin, everything that Amos is talking about is systemic sin right? It's not like individual sin, like you're greedy. No, it's, it is systems that are broken or designed to exploit certain people in society. And so it's this incredible juxtaposition in history where Israel is doing better than it has ever done. And Amos shows up and says, well, yeah, but you've gotten there by exploiting the economically vulnerable. That's how you got here. So consequently, God is going to hold you accountable. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Hear this word, people of Israel, the word the Lord has spoken against you, against the whole family I brought up out of Egypt. You only have I chosen of all the families on earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. And God's reminding them of this dream. Remember Exodus 19 and 20, where God says, the whole earth is mine, but I'm going to choose you people because I want to set up a society like no other, the sort of society that everyone longs to be a part of, where there's love and there's equality and there's justice. And it was going to be God's family on earth. And it was God's family on earth. And God says, well, now I have to step in like a parent and discipline you because you're not listening to me. Turn over to Amos chapter 5. This is really where I want us to camp. Amos is appealing to God's people. Look at verse 6. He says, seek the Lord and live, or he'll sweep through the tribes of Joseph like a fire. It will devour them, and Bethel will have no one to quench it. 
Skip down to verse 12. Listen to what he says. For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Do you see the systemic nature of this? Verse 15, he says, here's what I actually am after. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. So he's challenging them, hey, find new ways of operating. Like there's all these systems that you need to be a society. Find new ways of operating in those systems. It's an invitation to take those systems and align them with the dream of God, of what his people could actually be. It's an invitation to fix systemic injustice. Then in verse 21, like he says something that, um, like honestly, if you have any interest in God, it should stop us in our tracks. It should fill us with a little bit of fear. Amos is delivering these messages from God to his people, and then he says that God says this to his people. Verse 21. I hate, I hate I despise your religious festivals, your assemblies, they're a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings, grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. I think as American believers, we have to let this shake us a little bit. Because the environment Amos is describing is not all that different from ours. It's an environment uh, that is religiously very devout. The churches are full. The sacrifices are consistent. Everyone's singing those praise songs really loud. And our God looks at the way they're worshiping and he says, I hate that. I hate it. That is despicable to me. And if that doesn't cause you a little bit of nervousness in your heart, I think you're missing what's being said here. I, I think here's what Amos is telling us, is that there are two different standards that we might use. And most of us as God's people, we evaluate our spiritual health by our engagement with spiritual things. Are we worshiping? Are we reading our Bible? Are we doing the spiritual stuff we're supposed to be doing? But that's not God. God evaluates our spiritual health by our alignment with him. That's what Amos is telling these people. And so despite the fact that everyone's worshiping real loudly, showing up to church on time, God's saying, that has nothing to do with me, nothing to do with who I am, because you are not aligned with my dream of justice for every person. And I think the truth of this is God hates 
our spirituality when we ignore injustice. And it just, I, I don't know about you, but it gives me pause that the strongest language God uses in this book is not about their sins, but it's actually about their worship. Their worship while they tolerate injustice. God says, just stop. Just stop claiming to be my people if you don't care about my dream. You know, this dream where everyone has dignity, where everyone is responsible for how they treat others, where there's not double standards, there's just one standard. And it's this reminder that Israel's God wasn't like all the other nations' gods who would say, oh, I'm God of King Jeroboam, do what he says. That's not how Israel's God acted. Israel's God would say things like he says in Psalm 68, I am the Lord, a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows. He was the God who advocated for the poor who had no advocate. And that is why I really believe this. You cannot, you cannot, physically cannot worship God without caring for the poor. It's actually impossible to worship this God who identifies with vulnerable people while not caring for vulnerable people. Worship is not about liking God. Lots of people like God. Worship is about aligning with God, is what Amos is pointing out. So Amos is telling him, listen, just stop singing. I don't know. Stop sacrificing. Start fixing these problems that are making people God cares about vulnerable. Because that's what he's doing. He's fighting for those vulnerable people. It, it's, it's scary Man, it makes me never want to evaluate how we're doing as a church by how many people are in those seats. That's not God's standard, right? How do we apply this? Um, it needs to not just be something that makes us nervous, it makes us uncomfortable. It needs to be something that's tangible, that we walk out of here with something. Um, I, let me just suggest this. Is it a scary verse? real simple application. Here it is. If we want to worship God, we have to care about justice. We have to work against injustice. That's what he's saying. If we want to worship God, we have to care about justice. We have to work against injustice because God cares about justice and works against injustice. You might say, well, what does that mean, Jonathan? I mean, I think I care. Yeah, I care. Uh, what, what am I supposed to do about all the injustice in the world? I, I've been thinking about this a lot, studying this book for weeks. Um, th there's a few questions, there's three questions really that have emerged out of my study of Amos that I think Amos is saying, these questions are worshipful questions. We don't think of them as that, but these are questions about our worship. Here are the three questions. I want to hit you with them, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about racial injustice through this lens. First, are you volitionally responsible for injustice? He is asking that question in this book. Meaning, are you choosing with the power that you've been given on this earth to slant the scales in your favor? Are you exploiting someone? Are you treating someone as less than equal? And if you are, Amos real clearly here is saying, on behalf of God, stop it. Like, just stop it right away. Stop it now. Don't wait. It's not worth it. The God of the universe is actually actively working to undermine your attempts to treat somebody else unfairly. Please stop. That's the first question. Here's the second question, and this is where it gets a little bit trickier. Are you accidentally complicit in injustice? 
It's a harder question because it forces you to really analyze your life, to think critically about it. It's impossible to think about everything we do, so most of us just do stuff, and then we'll find out later, oh man, that was not good. And uh, Amos is saying, well, don't wait till later. Just think hard about the life that you're living in the context of the society in which you are living it. And I think Amos would say that sort of thinking hard, that's a form of worship. So worship God, think hard. Are you accidentally complicit? Here's a third question. Are you in a position to help with injustice that has nothing to do with you? Right? We're not responsible for every injustice in the world. We're not, and nor can we do everything about every injustice in the world. But also, we have to acknowledge this. If you are middle class in America, you are in the top 10% of money earners on earth right now. The top 10%, right? So you have some power that the other 90% do not have. And we have to own that, we have to recognize that, and we have to see Amos challenging us to use our power to fix some injustice that's out there. And I think, again, he would say that is worship, making the world a better place for vulnerable people that God identifies with. That's one of the ways that we worship God. So those are the three questions that I think are, are just worship questions that need, uh, we need to carry with us someplace. I, I, I want to talk specifically about racial injustice, injustice through this lens. We'll come back next week. There's lots of injustice. We'll talk about different type of injustice next week. Um, but I want to stay here for this week and answer these questions or just think about these questions through the lens of racial injustice. And I'm going to do it from the perspective of a white person because that's what I am. I want you to think about it from your perspective. First, are we volitionally responsible for racial injustice? Another way of asking that question on this issue is simply this. Are you racist? Like, are you actively participating in racism? I'm not accusing anyone of that. And I hope we all in this room would acknowledge that racism is totally incompatible with the gospel. And I'm not even going to waste a lot of words on this. I would just say that if we carry a negative bias about a certain group because of their ethnicity, a certain group created in the image of God, if we carry a bias about them because of their ethnicity, that is an attack on God's image. That's how significant it is. Racism attacks God, ultimately. It's that serious. And so the first question is just, are we actively responsible for racial injustice? The second question is where it gets tricky. Are we accidentally complicit in racial injustice? Um, Again, I'm not accusing anyone of anything. I'm just saying, let's sit with these questions. I do want to make a suggestion. The thing about being accidentally complicit is it's accidental, right? Um, by definition, we didn't mean to. A blind spot, by definition, is something that we do not see, right? That's what a blind spot is. And so this, this question is all about, hey, God, could you surface a potential blind spot in my life? And if we're going to take God's call to justice seriously, then we have to find a way to open our eyes to some things that maybe we do not see from the position that we sit. So this posture of humble curiosity is key on that second question. One of the best ways to do that, I would suggest, is to just see the world through another person's eyes. And I would say this to those of you who are white like me, uh, before we answer this, we probably need to have some listening conversations with our black brothers and sisters about what it's like to be black in America. 
before we can confidently answer that question. Because until we have the humility to have those sorts of conversations, then we run the risk of staying blind to something that God sees. Just because we don't see it, we think it's not there. And so that question is all about humility to allow yourself to see the world through somebody else's eyes and to see yourself and your behaviors through their lens. That's how you reveal a blind spot, and that's how you find out if you're accidentally complicit in something. It's the only way I know. Last question. Are we in a position to help with any racial injustice that's out there that we're not responsible for? You know, even if we're not actively or accidentally responsible, responsible for racial injustice, as a believer, I know you know that doesn't let us off the hook, right? Because as a believer, we want to do what the prophets did. And that's constantly look at God's king of, or God's dream of the perfect kingdom and, and work to bring that to earth as it is in heaven because that's what God is doing. And when we see gaps in our society between where we are and between God's kingdom related to race, we have to stop and ask, God, do you want me to step into that gap? And if he says yes, we have to step into that gap in some meaningful way and do what we can. And so the question is just, are, are there ways we can be advocates for greater racial justice in the U.S.? And does our God of perfect justice want us to do that? We have to ask that. I'm not going to tell you all the answers to that, and it's possible that we might come to some different conclusions on asking this, but what I am going to tell you is this. Questions like that are how we worship, Right? Questions like that about aligning with God's heart, about aligning with God's dream of the kingdom, that is worship because worship is about alignment with that heart. We cannot worship without carrying some uncomfortable questions to the altar. That's what Amos is telling us. All right, I know I'm going long, sorry getting fired up. Uh, I know I've said a lot. Uh, let me wrap up. I, I want to just tell you maybe briefly about just personal journey on this issue uh, that I've gone through in these last few years. Uh, one of my deep, deep frustrations with the conversation about racial injustice is how the American church has allowed it to be politicized. Um, justice is our word. Justice is the character of our God. Um, and, and the idea that we would allow that conversation to be controlled by politicians is just beyond me. It's just a mistake on both sides. We've allowed them to be the ones leading the conversation, and they seem to be actively working to make sure that no one in America has a meaningful conversation about race and justice. And yet here's the prophets showing up saying, God cares about this issue. You are his people. Talk about it. At least talk about it right? Do something about it. So church, I think, needs to be a place where that happens. I mentioned this a uh, couple weeks ago. We were talking about today uh, this racial reconciliation group led by Brian and Lisa Plasted. Um, Brian, a friend of mine, he's an elder at our church. He said, hey, can we do this here? I was like, yes, I'd love to be involved. And so uh, he, he and some of his friends just were bringing together black and white Christians and started looking at the history of racial injustice in America starting post-Civil War on up through today. Uh, and on, on that level, it was truly a fascinating experience. I don't know if you feel like you got the whole story in your U.S. history class in high school. I did not. Um, and so it was fascinating. I learned so many things that I did not know about our history that connected some dots about what is the nature of what's happening now in our country. But by far, the most important thing that happened in that group 
after we met for a few weeks, um, people got a little bit more comfortable with each other. Um, the believers in the group who were, who were black started sharing honestly about just some experiences that they'd had in their life. And that's their stories, I'm not gonna tell them here, but just injustices, real injustices that they'd experienced and things as a white man that I had never experienced, never. And it was such grace, it was such a gift because this is absolutely, they don't owe me anything. It is not their job to educate me on being black in America. Um, but they just stuck their necks out there and they just shared honestly. No agenda. Just this is what I've experienced. In their stories, something happened in my heart that like all the statistics and the talking points and all the online stuff could never accomplish. Um, and... It was as simple as this. I, I just began to be brokenhearted for my friends. And I felt grief for someone I cared about, just for what they had to carry. Up to that point, I had all sorts of well-formed ideas about race in America, um, but I'm embarrassed, ashamed to admit this, as a white man in America, up to that point, I had not shed one tear about racial injustice in this country. And I am absolutely positive that the God that I worship every single Sunday has shed many, many tears about racial injustice in this country. And I think as hard as Amos is at times to read, I think he is trying to give us a gift, and the gift is grief. Grief is about the distance between where we are today and God's kingdom. And it hurts to look at that. It's heavy in your hearts to look at that. And so in this group, to feel for the first time grief and brokenheartedness, it, it surprised me. It awakened in me a spiritual longing for the justice of God and his kingdom that, that was asleep. And I, I think that's what Amos is trying to do, is to wake people up and say, just this worship you're doing, no, 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 connect to God's dream. Grief over our broken world and longing for something more is worship. That's better worship than showing up and singing real loud. You know, the, the political conversation about this is obsessed with the question, hey, is America racist? I, I just, we're God's people. We have better questions. Amos is giving us a better question. In our world, is God's justice rolling on like a mighty river? That's a scriptural question. Is righteousness flowing like a never-failing stream? Those questions can only be answered by carrying God's dream and the grief that comes with it, how far we still have to go to the table and listening and learning and seeing what we could do. And that brings us finally to this table, to the table of Jesus. 
At the table, I think Jesus invites us to fall in love with God's dream anew, the dream of the kingdom. He gives us the symbol to keep that dream alive, the Lord's Supper, communion. You know, if you study this in the New Testament, what's fascinating is there is a connection between the Lord's Supper and justice. It's in 1 Corinthians 11. The Apostle Paul, he's writing to some believers in a church like this, and uh, he's angry at them, much like Amos is angry at the people of God, for the way that they are observing communion, for the way they're coming together to worship. And he says, some of you, you're eating this in an unworthy manner, much like Amos is saying, God hates this. And he really comes down on them hard and he says, God is actually judging the way that you worship at his table. Now, I don't know about you. I grew up in churches that told me that what that was about was about people who did a whole bunch of sinning and then they'd show up and take communion and not confess those sins. Um, I I was told in a church that was at, what that's about is about unbelievers sneaking up to the table and taking communion when they didn't really believe in Jesus. That's not what it's about. As I started studying the Bible for myself, you read the chapter, the issue is that there were some people who had wealth, who had means, and and they were rushing ahead and excluding some people who didn't. It is a justice issue that he is talking about with communion. In fact, here's what he says, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 20. So then, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat, for when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry. Another person gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. And he says, examine yourselves so that you do not eat of this table in an unworthy manner. And so on one hand, we have Amos here, and on the other hand, we have Paul, and they're both saying the same thing, this worshiping that you're doing. Would you take a step back and just examine yourself? Ask some hard questions about how aligned you are with the character and the dream of the God that you're seeking to worship. In communion, we remember the sacrifice of Christ for us, his life for our sin. Paul's saying, how can we enjoy his acceptance of us, while there are brothers and sisters being excluded and humiliated. And so I think to sit at this table, it it means, yes, we enjoy what Christ has done for us, but it also means we look around and we ask this question, who is not here? Who is missing? Who is not being given a choice seat? Who is being pushed to the fringes? That's how we worship at this table. So I want us to worship through the Lord's Supper today. Uh, The Lord's Supper is, though, a dream of justice. It's a table with space for everyone because of what Jesus did. It is the most beautiful and the most precious dream alive on earth. That's what he's inviting us into the kingdom. We're going to play some music. We just have one table because we thought that would be appropriate today, especially. Uh, I want you to come up, get the elements, and take them back to your seat and just sit for a second. Meditate, think about some of these questions. We're going to take them all together when I come back up. But I want us to come to the table today and enjoy the grace that God has for us. It's for us. But I also want us to come with the hard questions that he has for us. Is justice flowing? Is someone being left out? Would we know it if they were? Are we listening? Come and receive, come and grieve, come and dream with the God of perfect justice.
Come to the table. The Apostle Paul writes this, the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is for you, but it is not only for you. Take and eat. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. The new covenant is the dream of God's kingdom, a table with room for every person. Take and drink. Would you rise with me for our benediction?
Listen to these words about worship and who our God is from Psalm 68. But may the righteous be glad and rejoice before God. May they be happy and joyful. Sing to God, sing in praise of his name. Extol him who rides on the clouds. Rejoice before him. His name is the Lord. His name is the Lord. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. He leads out the prisoners with singing. May we align with his character. May we worship him for who he is. Go in peace.